Hey everyone, it's Heather. I know you're here to listen to the podcast, but did you know I also offer all kinds of online consulting services? Stuff like webinars, book studies, curriculum training and consultation, and even companion activities for podcast episodes to use for staff development. If you're interested, you can check out my website at www.thatearlychildhoodnerd.com or you can email me at heather at thatearlychildhoodnerd.com. Thanks for listening. Grab your highlighters. Can't find them? They're probably right there in your pocket protector. It's time for that Early Childhood Nerd Podcast. Let's get nerdy. Here's Heather. Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of That Early Childhood Nerd. I'm Heather Burnt Santi. And finally, it feels like finally we've been talking about doing this episode for a while. I've got authors Christine Snyder and Chris Amaralt today. Did I say it right after I asked you how to say it? I felt like I said it wrong. Okay, great. And they are the authors of a book by Free Spirit Publishing, which is my theme of the day. I just um, two hours ago recorded with um, four of the children's authors from Free Spirit. So I'm really excited. Um, This has been my day today, but your book is called Finding Your Way Through Conflict, Strategies for Early Childhood Educators. So I'm going to let you each talk about yourself, say, share whatever you want the audience to know about you, and then we'll do our quote and jump into the conversation. Well, Heather, first, I just want to say thanks so much for having us. Uh, We certainly um, feel very excited and proud of our work, but we love having conversations Mm -hmm. around conflict, conflict. And I think that's why people should tune in um, to this conversation as um, Chris and I really lean into it. Mm -hmm. And that's the work that we wanted to do was helping people to get more comfortable in conflict. And uh, I think the other reason people should pay attention is that Chris and I have made a lot of mistakes in conflict. So we have a lot of stories to talk (laughs) about it, which is how we became some version of stumbling experts um, in the work of conflict. So I'm Christine. I've been an early childhood educator for a little over 20 years. I've been a classroom teacher, uh, center director, administrator, author, trainer, coach, I used to write curriculum, uh, teach in higher ed, um, kind of been around the field quite a bit. And uh, Chris and I picked this work because we found it was relevant in every area of the early childhood field where there was a lot of opportunity for growth and support and exploration um, with, for stumbling people like us to bravely you know, lead us down some path here. So um, Chris, let's hear about mm-hmm. you. <laughs> Thanks, Christine. Um, well, I think Christine captured it really well. We actually first um, talked about conflict uh, when we were both serving on an NAYC uh, council together. And um, Christine's thoughts about conflict really focused on working with kids and conflict and how adults had really struggled with um, infant, toddler, and preschool um, conflict. And that as we talked, we realized that the background I had, which had focused a lot on work on equity and diversity, had the same issue, which is that everyone kind of agreed in principle on what the right thing to do was, but actually sitting down and dealing with difference and and, and real shifts in perspective that were challenging um, was an adult challenge. And we started a conversation um, that has gone on and on and on and ended up producing that book. Like Christine, I've had a lot of different roles over the last 20 years, but I've always been a building uh, leader. I've been a school director for a preschool in Rhode Island. And then after a year consulting, living with my family in Mexico, I moved here to Tulsa, Oklahoma, where I'm a school director for a Tulsa Educare school. I work in higher ed too, just taught the infant toddler uh, development sequence at OU. Um, and have served in a lot of leadership roles. And like Christine, um, I think we both found ourselves, uh, we're nice people. I mean, I, I kind of, you know, generally, I think. Um, but we started noticing the bad effects of being nice all the time mm-hmm. and ended up talking about how really did draw a lot of people who wanted to be friendly and ask really um, struggling when they had um, problems and challenges with adults. And very often, little things grew into big things. And it seemed uh, to hit um, 
a very uh, powerful nerve because we've ended up presenting this work to thousands of people actually at NYC and Highscope and Zero to Three, and of course um, uh, have written the book. So, so excited to be here, Heather. Thanks for asking us. Yeah, no problem. I think um, this book, if I'd had it when I was a center director, would have um, uh, really made things not necessarily easier, but maybe more effective <laughs> in efforts. Um, that was always my biggest uh, struggle. You know, it wasn't anything with the children. It, it wasn't even really the families, but the between me and staff or, you know, among staff members, there was always something. Um, and I, I never felt quite equipped for it. <laughs> Heather, I'm actually really glad that you started with that word easier, uh -huh. because it's one of the things that Chris and I always preface our presentations with that we're actually not here to solve all of the conflicts. Mm -hmm. And it actually might not even get any easier. Mm -hmm. But I think what our work does is it helps make the hard stuff make sense. Mm -hmm. And so you just get a little more cozy being in it because you understand why these things feel hard or why things feel big or why things you know, raise big emotion for people. So yeah. if you're just tuning in, we're not here to get, <laughs> make things easier. We're here to make things easier to understand. Yeah. Uh, so that really is a, a great uh, sort of paraphrasing of the quote I was going to use to start the conversation and then forgot to use. So, <laughs> so rather than just reread all of that, maybe that can be sort of the starting point uh, well, and, conversation. And, and and I think while Christine is busy driving listeners away, I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> assist her in saying we also are not experts. Uh, th that, that part of what our work and research proved was um, anybody who says they're an expert about conflict, you probably want to run as quickly as possible in the opposite direction uh, because the, the problem is always, I unfortunately have to bring myself into every conflict. And I have uh, all the baggage that all humans have and, and I build crooked timber things just like everybody else. And, uh, and you know, Christine and I have plenty of conflicts between ourselves to prove that we're not experts. And so, um, but again, we think that that attitude um, is actually really, really important, right? That you always have something to learn and um, that uh, trying to feel like you can get to a point where you can solve it all with the right strategies is actually really dangerous. Yeah. Um, so why is it dangerous? I want, please talk more about that. Like, what, what do you mean by that? Well, one of the things that I think um, we've, we've really promoted, and I think I've learned a lot more about in the last couple of years in doing the research that I've been doing around motivational interviewing, is that it's all about relationship. And if one person comes in thinking they've got solutions and they've figured it out or they've got the right toolkit, actually, that's a really convenient way to erase somebody else. And mm -hmm. what our book emphasizes over and over again is that working through conflict means actually engaging with this person who you probably are being driven crazy by. Um, but that's actually the most important step, which means you can't have the right tools before you start the conversation. Um, and that means that if you aren't thinking about engaging with somebody in that way, you can actually make things a lot worse as opposed to making them better. And having a superior attitude about how well you're gonna make things worse um, can truly <laughs> screw things up. I don't know, Christine, um, if that makes sense to you too. Well, I think, you know, I wanna come in with my early childhood lens here. When we talk about conflict with young children, we think about what happens in the brain, right? Typically as humans, we're pretty balanced between, you know, emotions and cognitive um, thinking and processing. But when conflict comes up, because we show up as ourselves and it's connected to our identity, emotions tend to get really big. And when emotions get big, thinking gets very small. Mm -hmm. And so even when we go into a conflict situation with some principles or skill sets around conflict resolution, when the emotions take over, we're not really in that thinking space that knows how to do conflict. And so what happens is we then tend to act or respond based on our emotions rather than the skill set that we may have practiced practiced and developed, which is also the reason that there have been a number of times I've gone back to mine and Krista's book, because when I'm in my emotional space, I'm not remembering the research I sure. read. I'm responding and reacting to things that triggered something with my identity. Mm -hmm. And so the problem with going into it, thinking, you know, conflict is that you aren't going into it with your knowledge of conflict. You're going into it as your messy self with big emotions. Most often. Yeah. And that's one of the things that, uh, from the very first page of the introduction, one of the things you say is to learn how to get out of conflict, you must learn how to be in conflict. And that's so uncomfortable. 
for most of us. For some people, it's really fun, you know, this idea of being in conflict, but for most of us, we just want to solve it and move out of it or avoid it. Yeah. And I would say, you know, I don't know that Chris and I have fun in conflict. (laughs) I think we have embraced and internalized the fact that it's healthy and normal and deeply human to just be immersed in navigating the tricky thing that is understanding each other, the situation that we're in and how to move forward. And I think that's the other dangerous part is when we race to the finish line without doing the work, we're going to end up right back in the mess we're in anyway. You know, Christine, I I would say that I really have fun in other people's conflicts, <laughs> which, which I think is really kind of its own danger, right? But, but I think it's because I think it's so fascinating. And I always feel like, oh, this is so interesting because you're you and you're you and look at the two of you creating this thing that's actually an opportunity to grow closer. I mean, I think one of the things that we've really um, proven over and over again and have brought into our own work in our buildings and courses and things like that is that ruptures of trust are opportunities to repair, to build greater trust. Mm-hmm. Um, and that very often those ruptures are grounded in misperceptions and miscommunication, uh, much more so than um, in fundamental philosophical differences. We, we really um, have so often over and over found that what are perceived as fairly large things end up boiling down to pretty small things mm-hmm. where people can find common ground. and. But the fact that they work through a conflict together actually brings them together and makes their relationship even stronger. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one of the things that I think is really um, enjoyable, I think, about facilitating other people going through it. Um, but it, no, it always sucks for me being in conflict. <laughs> I still, I mean, I don't know. In fact, it's kind of embarrassing being a person who wrote a book on conflict right. and fucking at it, right? I mean, it's a little... Do as I say, not as I do kind of oh, situation. Oh, no, it's really... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you too, to talk about, uh, I'm still just in the very, looking at the very early parts of the book, but you talk about how everyone involved needs, has their own personal dictionary and we need to work through that as a really early step in any, in any sort of um, process with conflict. So, um, so would you talk about what you mean by a personal dictionary and, and what that looks like? Well, I mean, I mean, I was just going to tee it up for you, Christine, which is that's exactly what happened when we first started doing the work, Heather, is that people started saying, well, I don't get into conflicts. Mm. And so we had to really stop and pause and say, well, what is this word and what impact does it have on folks? Yeah, exactly. So uh, we spent a significant amount of time actually defining conflict and really to get to the point that we all have varying definitions. If someone says there's a conflict, there is one. Like you can't decide that just because it doesn't feel like a conflict for you, that it's not a conflict for someone else. And then also kind of um, getting away from all of the baggage that comes with the word conflict, that sometimes people feel like they're bad if they get in conflict or conflict always has to be loud or violent or vulgar, or that conflict can happen with very good people and conflict can happen very calmly and conflict can happen with love. Like there's the way that we think about conflict carries a lot of social baggage um, and some kind of implications around even morality sometimes. But so spending a lot of time in that also helps us recognize where the work can be applied in a broad range of relationship dynamics that we don't always even have to say, this is a conflict that if we just get comfortable with like social tension, differences in perspective, that the the strategies in the work that Chris and I talk about apply to those broad ranges of interactions where there might be a misunderstanding, a disagreement, or a missed opportunity for collaboration. Mm -hmm. And I think beyond that, anytime that you are working collaboratively, maybe it's even good working when you're by yourself. I don't know, but you should always unpack words. We tend to throw around big words like respect and responsibility and accountability, but like, what do those things mean? Like, what does respect mean? And so uh, as a leader in my program, we spend a lot of time unpacking those words. Like every year when we set our agreement for how we're going to approach the work as a collective center community, we unpack the work. The words, what does respect look like? What does that feel like? What does it sound like? 
And so I think anytime that you're actually committed to something, you should unpack the words. And part of that's about having a personal, you know, dictionary experience. Um, but that's where the relationship is built when you tell your stories about why you think something means what it does or mm -hmm. why you understand that or how <clears throat> you understand something differently. And sometimes other people can give us the words that we can't find. So when we spend time in that, you're actually building the relationship and that's the beginning of the work. When you think you're really just talking around it, you're actually doing it. Mm -hmm. I, I would, I mean, I agree with everything Christine said and I, and I would add one sort of, um, I guess, context. Uh, one of the jokes that I often make is we either released a book on conflict at exactly the right moment, which was the moment when the pandemic hit, or at exactly the wrong <laughs> moment. And our sales figures suggest by the way uh. the latter. Um, but but I do think that that the experience of a collective trauma has helped us talk about challenges and difficulties and conflicts. And, and lean into the fact that so many of the folks in our field prior to COVID actually had a lot of experience with trauma. And mm -hmm. that's certainly true with my faculty and staff here in Oklahoma. Um, you know, Oklahoma is one of the most challenging places for a child to grow up. And most of my uh, team uh, grew up in Oklahoma and they have their own uh, histories of challenging experiences. And so speaking, giving things names, um, acknowledging the uh, the power and the feelings that that can have that um, that bleed into things like relationships with other people that don't necessarily um, connect to the history that you're experiencing as we're talking so all of those ways of thinking about trauma we really felt like it was great to give things names and it was really great for people to be able to articulate what was happening with them and again that the research seemed to bear that out that people owning their story instead of letting people um, erase it again, um, was a very important part of us thinking about this notion of the words we use and how important they can be. Mm -hmm. Chris, I thought you were actually <clears throat> gonna preface that with the timing of when we were developing this work. Mm -hmm. And when we were doing the presentations and writing the book, it was, is, was, will, continues to be significantly politically tense social climate. And so um, that was kind of an interesting just layer that came into our conversations and when we were um, presenting certain topics or ways to think yep. about things that, that felt really heavy and relevant at times mm -hmm. too. But yeah, then enter the pandemic. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Mm. Um, I, I was looking for something specific and I don't see it, but I, I think that this was, um, for me, something was prompted by the book and I can't remember if it was a specific story or if it was just something you read that was like a, a wrote that I was like, oh my God, that was me. Um, but I remember one particularly uncomfortable teaching team. It was me and another, another woman working with two-year-olds and, um, we did not get along. We did not hit it off uh, at all. And um, so my my answer was just to let her do her thing and I would do my thing and felt very much like I was managing potential conflict by just not um, <laughs> acknowledging it. And, and I, but I, oh, I felt physically sick some days. And um, now I, I, you know, as I was reading through this, that came to mind in a couple different places that I um, I was, um, I was not comfortable being in conflict or I assumed there was no conflict because we hadn't actually verbalized anything to each mm. other about it, or, um, you know, there hadn't been a big blow up or something in the classroom. Heather, you know, we have met hundreds of you. <laughs> All right, then I'm not well, special. And, and, and I think we have, we have great sympathy for, the folks who tell us these stories because, you know, again, to, to reference some of our personal experiences, both Christine and I have been program directors and coaches and things like that. And nobody ever trained us mm -hmm. to handle conflict between adults. I, uh, you know, I've taught many courses in higher ed, as has Christine. Our curricula very rarely teach collab, forget about conflict, it rarely teaches collaboration. I mean, most of the assignments, if they're collaborative, are collaborative in some, you know, college, put it together yourself way. It's not actually about how do you work as a team, as an instructional team. Mm -hmm. And um, th that, uh, 
that lack of, of opportunity to learn this, these, you know, to understand this stuff and to develop the skills around it um, is something that I think is endemic in the field. It's, it's not, it's not something that individuals um, experience because they're, you know, you, you're not a dummy, Heather, but the problem is, is that conflict turns you inside, right? Conflict mm-hmm. turns you, I mean, part of what's so tricky about conflict is that we end up thinking about a lot of I statements, or we're busy pointing a finger at somebody else and saying you statements, because we're defending that I. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't promote a way of thinking about the systemic effects that bring us to situations where we don't have the tools to fix these things. I mean, mm-hmm. these are it's not the fault of the people who can't solve conflicts if nobody's ever said, hey, this is part of the work. Yeah. Um, so um, we feel you. Full disclosure, I did leave many days thinking she doesn't know who the hell I am. <laughs> well, so, okay, you just opened the door there. Yeah. Heather, right? so did I wanted, you see Christine and I just leaned? Yeah, you both did. Oh, this is great, Heather. Oh, Thank good. you for disclosing that. I want to jump back to something that Chris said when we first started talking, though, and that was we are nice people, right? We enter this field because we are caregivers. We are service providers. We are loving. We are warm. We are responsive. And there's something in our identity that makes that feel like that can't be. We can't be nice, loving caregivers and get into conflict, right? That's part of that kind of social paradigm about who gets in conflict, what conflict is, and what that means about relationships and you as a good, nice person. Um, but yes, let's go back, um, to you, Heather. And so this is related, very related to, uh, what we understand about identity and conflict and also vulnerability. And so, yeah, she probably didn't know you and you probably didn't let her know you. And some of that is we often try to learn about each other in conflict and that's really the wrong time. And that goes back to the idea of feelings being really big and then thinking space is really small. The, the role that vulnerability plays makes it really hard for us to let other people know us and for us to know other people. Mm-hmm. So. Chris, I want to hear your thoughts well, on what we just learned about our, our nice well, friend here, Heather. I know. Well, you just teed up the exact uh, uh, frame that I was going to use oh, in our analysis of Heather's psyche, which is, <laughs> which is um, it actually, and, and, and credit where credit's due, uh, a book that we found extraordinarily helpful uh, was by Patton and Stone and Heen called Difficult Conversations. It came out in the early uh, 2000s. Mm. And they had done a ton of research on what makes difficult conversations difficult. And the, the research prior to their work really had focused on that the way to have a difficult conversation was to talk about what happened, which of course is important, and then to shift into a conversation about feelings. And, and typically um, that was where things ended, was an exchange mm-hmm. of um, input or, or, or perspective about feelings, what, what you did made me feel this way. And what, what Pattonstone and Heen found was that there was this third piece that, that um, Christine just named, but that the reason why we perked up is because <laughs> you said something that flagged it, mm-hmm. which has to do with identity, which is the, the joke I always make is, you know, there are people who, uh, when they're walking up the stairs in their house and they pass a dirty sock on the stairs, they grab the sock and they walk upstairs. Um, there are other people who stop, look at the sock and imagine the asshole who left the sock <laughs> on the stairs because, okay, so what happened? There's a sock on the stairs. What are the feelings? Anger. But what's the identity piece? And well, it has to do with respect. It has to do with this person doesn't recognize who I really am. It has to do with the fact that I have labor that this person doesn't value. And Heens, uh, Patton and Stone all said that identity piece is what actually, that's like the gas that makes the, the difficult conversation go. And we very often don't get to that. So mm-hmm. we want to get to that point of saying, well, geez, Heather, tell me why your identity feels assaulted by this particular event. And simply learning that usually means you say things that really make sense to me because we live in a field where people don't feel respected. Mm-hmm. They don't feel heard their remuneration sucks. They very often weren't trained to do the jobs that they're expected to do. They're supposed to be nice and they have a bunch of very angry people around them that are two or three or four years old. (laughs) And so there's a whole bunch of things that are hard about our job that are about not feeling respected and not having your identity treated like your sacred human being. And that is not connected to a sock. (laughs) 
So but it, it's hard yeah. not to feel that, right? Right. In yeah. Conflict. Yeah. I just want to add the other tricky thing about this, like Chris is asking these questions, right? Like, why does the sock make you angry? But that's actually not Chris asking you, Heather. The requirement is that Heather asks Heather. And that's where people <laughs> get tripped up is that they think about conflict as being something that's the conflict resolution is done to someone else. They mm -hmm. need to fix who they are. And the conflict work actually starts with yourself. And that's where it can feel pretty uncomfortable. If you have to explore your identity, you're going to have to face some stuff. And that's hard. So I think that's part of too, is when you enter into conflict, thinking the other person needs to fix themselves or be fixed, <laughs> um, you're skipping the big important step of, mm -hmm. you know, leaning into yourself and what you bring to it and what you understand. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That makes so much sense. Yeah. Well, and, and I'm I think definitely that, the one who picks up the sock and heads upstairs without. <laughs> well, but, but there's always a sock. Mm -hmm. I mean, everyone has a dirty sock or a poorly loaded dishwasher or, mm -hmm. you know, um, I think also, Heather, this is one of the ways that Christine and I recognize that our field actually had people who were primed to be able to understand that because we've developed a way to think, you know, conscious discipline being a great example. We've developed a way to think about how we contribute to the environment that children experience that can be positive and supportive or toxic and dangerous because of who we are right? It's not always about the kiddos. It's always about us and the kiddos. And that was true for the diversity work that I'd been doing for a long time, right? Mm -hmm. That it was really important for white people to recognize that they were connected to an identity that may, they may have never even thought about before, but that was having a big impact on the way that they perceived the world. And other people saw them as white, and they didn't know that that was something that was going on. So that notion of coming to realize what you bring mm -hmm. to the work was something that both in the diversity work we had been doing and in the work we had been doing around um, social emotional behavioral development, really, people had been thinking about that in that way, just not in this other way. Yeah. So, so would this be a good time to bring the conversation to mindfulness? Would that be a good segue? Because <laughs> you spend some time in the book talking about mindfulness. And um, actually, uh, one of the regular co-hosts, Richard Cohen, and I had done an episode. Oh, there was a third person who I don't remember now, but she'll forgive me. It was probably Bethany Corey. Anyway, um, where we had used a quote from the book about mindfulness to talk about how that sort of was different from what comes to mind for a lot of us. Um, so while you hunt for yeah, the thing you're looking yeah, for, yeah. I was just going to add, conflict's not linear. So uh, we can go wherever you want to go with this. Uh, <laughs> no. I think that's the thing about doing the work is that you have to jump to the thing that makes that sense next, right? Sometimes yeah. it's a pause and pivot and you know reframing what you think the problem to solve is or spending mm -hmm. more time with yourself or spending more time with the words you think that everyone understands, but yeah. maybe actually don't. So sometimes when we think about steps to conflict resolution, we want them to happen cleanly in order and and that's not always the case. And mm -hmm. we often have to revisit work. So this is just permission to go wherever you want. <laughs> well, thank you for the time. I found the quote. <laughs> so um, it's in chapter three. Um, you, you offer a definition from um, John Kabat-Zinn, mm -hmm. um, defining mindfulness as paying attention in a particular way on purpose in the present moment and non-judgmentally. And then you say for early childhood educators, Responding to a series of challenging, unnerving situations with children, families, and colleagues each day requires paying close, purposeful attention in the moment and without judgment. So, so for me, and what we talked about in this other episode I was re referring to was just, you know, mindfulness has sort of become a commodity and a buzzword where it's like you buy this packet and you do mindfulness and kids will behave <laughs> and it's all about your breathing. Um, which, you know, of, of course there are elements of that, but the way you're describing it doesn't sound like that product. Like that doesn't sound like that's what you're talking about. Right. I mean, I, I, so, so full disclosure, um, our, one of the other ways that we connected is that both Christine and I have a lot of experience in meditation and specifically working within a Buddhist context. Mm -hmm. And John Kabat-Zinn was a Zen Buddhist working in uh, the Western Mass at the University of Massachusetts Medical School, and he really coined the phrase mindfulness, mm -hmm. and that was the basis for mindfulness-based uh, stress reduction, or MBSR, which is you know, now an extremely common treatment, and I think, I, I won't speak for Christine, but I think she would probably agree that with you that um, there's a sort of commodified version of mindfulness 
Um, and then there's another uh, approach. And I think it goes back to something Christine said right at the beginning, which is we're not talking about peace. We're not talking about comfort. We're, we're actually talking about turning towards something challenging precisely because it is challenging. Mm -hmm. And that's a very particular way of thinking about mindfulness. It's not, um, it's not about uh, trying to understand the world as somehow um, in having a characteristic of wonder and peacefulness at every moment by ignoring something challenging. It's actually about being able to take a deep breath, yes, and then confront something challenging. Mm -hmm. But as Christine is saying, then starting with yourself, I mean, we we were very um, uh, interested and engaged in the, some of the research from Circle of Security, which had, um, you know, asks everybody to sort of stop and think about these big feelings and then think about how their parenting or their teaching mm -hmm. is impacted by what experiences they had as a child. All the work on ACEs is connected to this. There's a lot of stuff coming out of the project that I have a little bit to do with called the Happy Teacher Project, where we want individuals to think about themselves. And it's not always uh, nice and neat and you know flying musical unicorns. A lot of times it's really mm -hmm. ugly. And um, especially for the folks that we serve, I mean, I work in a Head Start program. I'm dealing mm -hmm. with families that are struggling with really hard things. And if right. I turn away from difficulty so that I can be happily mindful, I'm going to erase people. Yeah, I agree with everything um, that Chris said. And isn't this why it's so fun and important to unpack words? Like, what do we <laughs> mean by this? And I think for me, when I think about that quote and the way that we used it, I think about this work being on purpose and mm -hmm. with intention. And I think sometimes mindfulness, mindfulness and the way that it's packaged and marketed and used is not harmful, but it's also the way that we're talking about mindfulness is not a checklist item. It's not something that you do 10 minutes, you know, when you wake up in the morning to start your day mindfully. Um, this is the way that it has to come up is through and in the work doing it on purpose and with intention. So it has a lot to do with how you are in the midst of conflict, not something as a daily practice where mindfulness is sometimes encouraged to give yourself 10 minutes without distraction or mm -hmm. 10 minutes without, um, away from, you know, sensory input and being overstimulated. And, um, so I think, Again, like unpacking words is so useful and healthy. So we know what we mean when we're saying it. Right. And I, I, I think your use of the word commodified, Heather, is really, really important. Thinking about this work, I think what Christine said, you know, how you are is more important actually than what you do. Mm -hmm. And one of the people who will happily explain that to you is my wife, who, <laughs> when we were working on the book, at one and are we allowed to swear in this podcast absolutely By the way, yeah so um we're encouraged so, well, thank you <laughs> while we were working on this book um we were having we had a disagreement about something and i started to talk and and my wife andrea whom i love deeply by the way said if you use that conflict bullshit on me i'm gonna like walk out of the room so so there are ways to use these things built for authenticity and relationship building that are fakey commodified relationship killers yeah. and i think that that's one of the things we um again, kind of realized in part in our own relationship, right? We, we had moments where the other person was like, hold the phone. What, what did you just do right there? <laughs> and we had to sort of talk about like, wow, that didn't work for me. And of course, going back to this notion of relationship first, the, the purpose of working through conflicts is to build a better relationship. If someone's actually tormenting you and is violating your EEOC rights, um, we are not interested in having you work through a conflict. We want you to go find your supervisor mm -hmm. and get help. Um, but if you have to work with somebody and you're annoyed that they're taking the artwork from that wall and putting it on that <laughs> wall, we think you ought to figure that out yeah. and, and, and you'll have a better relationship at the end of it, but not because you went A, B, C, D, one, two, three through mm -hmm. some set of steps that somebody else told you were, were, were important. Yeah. Would you say that even if, um, you know, ultimately the quote unquote problem wasn't solved, still going through that process improves, can improve relationship, but, but there might not always be that solution that either party was looking for. 
I mean, I'll just quickly say, we actually, I don't think ever use the word solve in mm -hmm. that book for exactly that reason. I don't know, Christine, what you're thinking. Yeah, I think uh, when we go through the process of engaging in conflict, we can walk away saying we understand more, we understand differently, our relationship is stronger, we know what to try next. That, mm -hmm. yeah, solved is a really risky word because there are so many factors that contribute to uh, the kind of conflicts that arise in, well, in any situation. But thinking about, you know, early childhood educator conflicts, they're all nuanced, mm -hmm. right? Every year you get a new group of children, teaching <laughs> teams change, administrators change, COVID happens. Like, mm -hmm. so the conflicts that came up three years ago, five years ago, five years from now, will have familiar elements, right? Heather, you can probably think about themes of conflict that came up. Uh, you know, when I was a toddler infant teacher, there was, you know, in any given situation, classroom, sometimes there would be tension around diaper changes, yeah. right? You know, who's not <laughs> doing their share, who seems to not notice that a child has a poopy diaper, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's not unique to me or my teaching partners. That happens in like every infant toddler classroom at some point over the years. But mm -hmm. there's these other kind of nuances, right? So we haven't solved the diaper, you know, equitable diaper changing. We haven't solved that. But that's not really the goal. The goal is to work through the relationship and understand each other differently, better. Right and center, you know, our next steps mm -hmm. on children's needs and well-being first. So, no, solved is a, is also a dangerous word. Yeah. And and to me, Heather, this is another moment where Christine's background, doing tons of work around infant toddler uh, development, and the work I had done around equity and diversity, found this really interesting sort of intersection. You know, Christine and I share an absolute hatred of teachers. At telling children to tell somebody else they're sorry. Yeah. Um, we, we think that's actually really <laughs> fascist and scary and horrible. Yeah. <laughs> and and it's and and that the the uh, the function of an apology in a conflict um, it can be really damaging um, because it can be my way to say, all right, we need to be done with this mm -hmm. crap that you're bringing up, Heather. So I'm going to apologize to you, which means we're over. This is you need to take your concerns and put them in a sock, and. <laughs> Because I'm that, sorry. <laughs> well, well, I mean, that's I mean, that's the way yeah. sorry works yeah. in so many situations, right? Mm -hmm. And so, but of course, we know teachers that teach children that all the time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Everyone loves diversity until you actually disagree with somebody. <laughs> and then diversity is this big, huge problem. So people can, you know, sing kumbaya and celebrate equity and diversity all they want. But if you can't actually live someone the same difference from you, mm -hmm. you aren't really honoring anything remotely resembling equity or diversity. What you're doing is creating these weird homogenous normative systems where other people have to fit in and you just don't see it. Mm -hmm. um, that's not, again, that's something we really, when we do our presentation, we talk a lot about white folks struggling with that, right? Mm -hmm. Which is that they think that if they can move through and get to a happy ending, something has you know, gone well, but there's a lot of people who've been trained that making sure the white people get to a happy ending is a survival tactic in a white supremacist yeah. environment, so. Yeah. So sorry is another really interesting word uh, to unpack. Chris, I'm glad you brought that up because we don't really, not we, uh, all of the three of us here, but collectively as a society, we don't really seem to agree on whether sorry is a manner mm. or an or, or an emotion. Mm. And so when we think about a word like, hi, thank you, you're welcome, like thank you is a manner, gratitude is something you feel. Oh. And so a lot of times in conflict situations with children or adults, you know, it's reinforced that we should apologize and say sorry, but that's actually a manner. You can't make someone feel sorry. Right. And I'm not sure that we've done enough work to unpack that or think about the implications that certainly when you're walking down the hall and you bump elbows with someone, say, sorry, that's a manner. You don't need to have feelings about yeah. it. That's not, you know, or, the, or you just say, Oh, Oh, right. If you're from the Midwest, <laughs> you just sneak right by. Yeah, that's what yeah exactly. Yeah. But so yeah. I think uh, that's, again, just another uh, word to unpack or the way we think about what does that mean mm -hmm. when we expect or people to say sorry or ask children to say sorry. And I think quite often we are imposing the manner when we want to develop empathy and the actual feeling of it mm -hmm. and imposing the manner does the opposite. Yeah. And so we've, we've got a bit of work to uh, do that better, I think, for all mm. for ourselves, for our children and each other. Yeah. And we need to record a whole other episode sometime about feelings and manners. 
(laughs) because that could be, that could go in so many directions and I think would really be relevant too. So I made a note of it, (laughs) but yeah, thank you. That was a, that, that element of, uh, sorry, shutting things down, um, is, is difficult for, for some people I'm sure. Yeah. Um, do you have a, uh, a story you'd like to tell? Like I didn't prep you for this, but your book has a lot of stories that you share as examples. Is there something that you spur of the moment on the spot in front of everyone can tell, we would like to tell? We did tell you that you could ask us anything. Oh, that's right. You did. Yeah. Right. Chris, do you have one that comes to mind? Here's the test. Yeah. I mean, um, what, one of the, um, you know, I, I mean, I, I know, you know, Heather, we, we had an amazing editor, Kira Ostendorf is a, is a good friend of ours. And she did astounding work helping us hammer this thing into, into shape. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but with all, with all publishing comes uh, decisions you may not like as much as um, you, you would otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and being in to get out of conflict was actually the name of the presentation and it, and it changed to the title that you have referenced. Mm-hmm. But another thing that we um, had originally thought would be part of the book is something that the the, uh, the publisher and the editor felt was a little too too. But we had written a we we had like an introduction plus a preface, and then we had a foreword or something. We had, <laughs> we had like four different, you know, and they were they could, so thought it took a little bit too long to get to the to the heart of the book. But the episode that we talked about was um, a moment when we were writing the book, when we were uh, at a Panera, I think, actually, oh. and um, and feeling great. We, we were really excited about the work we were doing and our relationship was in good shape and things felt really good. And then for um, reasons that are um, probably a little arcane for a listener, um, all of a sudden we found ourselves in a really weird, unexpected conflict. And... Um, and it had to do with a very specific moment about where Christine was at in her head and what she was feeling and where I was at and what, what I was feeling. And it, it revealed itself, I think, as we talked about it as a really fundamentally, um, I don't know, unintended, but deeply, uh, weird miscommunication. Hmm. And, and I think that it was very, I think, I mean, I'll, I'll be interested to hear what Christine thinks <laughs> about it, but I felt very, I was really embarrassed um, mm. about it. And then felt like the humility, the two of us gained and had to sit in. I mean, it wasn't fun. This is, I mean, to go back to what we've been saying, this is not, the two of us weren't smiling. Um, <laughs> well, I was I think, initially. <laughs> No, that's true. Well, I was, I'm trying to protect you. Um, but, but, but the, but the, the very, um, the, the, any, any, any hubris we had up to that point about presenting ourselves as the people who had figured this out kind of got thrown up on this Panera table. And I think that that was really good for the book and good for us. Cause I think that it actually ended up um, not only making for a better book, despite the elimination of the, this anecdote being described, mm-hmm. um, but I think that it changed the way we thought about, for example, advice and strategy and techniques and things like that. So we hope that that tone came through um, in the book, but I don't know, Christine, if you wanted to comment on this event. Yeah, I'm going to... Um advance some trust from you and share just a little more context about oh what yeah happened. I'm, I'm um, just sure trying to be yeah sure. I was trying to do the same for you yeah so um Chris and I live in different states Chris lives in Oklahoma I live in Michigan we very rarely get to see each other in person we both lead very busy personal and professional lives and so we connect when we can as friends and colleagues and um to do this work intentionally and so we had this rare full overlapping day in Nashville, Tennessee, when we were there to present at a national conference. And so we met, you know, first thing in the morning, thinking we'd have this day together. And basically the conflict uh, arose for uh, the main reason that we had different ideas about what the work was that day. Mm. So again, thinking about um, what we understand about words, what we communicate and what we bring to that um, are really impactful. And I think two things um, happened that were really pivotal. And one was 
um, Chris was carrying some stress about our work not moving forward as, you know, on a timeline um, that he was, he rightfully thought should have been moving forward. We were behind. <laughs> and the other thing, and I actually didn't remember this until this moment, Chris, but I had um, a really dangerous, uncomfortable interaction on the street where I was confronted um, in a uh, in a rather assaulting way. Oh, and no. uh, the way that I cope with that kind of stress is um, to be more joking, right? Like I balance, you know, feeling threatened, stressed, unsafe. And I feel very safe with Chris. Chris is probably the person in my life I feel most safe with besides my husband. <laughs> and, but what had happened on the street required me to have some recovery time, but I didn't necessarily want to talk to Chris about it. I just wanted to have like our jokey banter before we joke and we, we dove into the work. So Chris and I were coming into this conversation to do the work with these big, heavy things that we weren't talking about. Mm. Chris's stress about our being behind on our timeline and me just needing a little bit of time to recover from this thing that happened on the street. And that put us into conflict. And that's kind of, you know, one of the things that we talk about is so often what we think the conflict is really isn't. Mm -hmm. And so um, Chris got frustrated with me over like a comment I made, but my comment was just being jokey, trying to get out of, you know, feeling unsafe. And Chris was trying to move forward to manage his stress. And, and then there was a moment where we're like, oh shit, we're in it. (laughs) We've got to start, we've got to do the work now. Mm -hmm. And there were times that it felt like we wasted a whole day because we miscommunicated. And then we're like, we did not waste a day. This is the work. This, and that's one of the things that's one of the principles that yeah. we say. Conflict is not a distraction from the work. It, it is, is the work. work. Okay. That day was so pivotal for our relationship, but also for the content that we wrote. And so um, as you can hear us talking about this situation, you can see why the editors were like, yeah, that situation feels a little too, you know, about your relationship. It's kind of anecdotal. Will will readers get it if they Mm -hmm. don't hear you talk about it? And Mm -hmm. so um, it is a good story for, I think this setting, but it was, it was tricky as an intro, but it was, it was a great example for us to live what we were trying to write about. And also a good message that Chris and I are very, very good friends. And we have done a ton of professional work together. We have two strong relationship dynamics and we still fuck it up. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and, and I, and I think that one of the things that um, I, I, and I will say, I, it, it, I really don't like thinking about that conversation. And I was thinking about what I don't like about it. And it's because I, I, even with Christine, who I feel the same way that she's describing, I I mean, I trust her completely. um, I still don't want her to see my worst self. Mm -hmm. And conflict almost certainly guarantees that what I am going to have to reveal to somebody else is my, some version of my worst self. Mm -hmm. And I think that that thing that both of us were in was actually grounded in a sense of respect and love and, and commitment and caring, but it was also kind of misplaced because we also, I mean, I'll speak for myself. I, there are moments when I can't trust that if I show you my most screwed up self, you're going to still love me. Mm. And, you know, this goes back to Becky Bailey's point, right? Which is like, when we're in those big limbic emotions, I really am thinking, am I, can I be loved right now? And I think that that's hard to think about in conflict because it means that you actually rely on somebody else that you may feel like you want to blame and criticize, but actually you want something from them. Mm -hmm. And it's right. You want to feel secure. You want to feel a sense that you're collaborating and can trust somebody else. And, that was really the tack we ended up taking with the whole book. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think it's interesting too, when you were describing how you felt, Chris, if I were to describe that situation, I would also say I felt embarrassed. And I don't, I don't think that's a place that we can often get to where we can just be so vulnerable. And we, we were both so embarrassed. That says a lot about our commitment to the work and our trust in each other. And that's hard to do in a professional context because we want to be seen as credible and reliable. Are they still going to like me? Are they going to tell my boss? Am I going to lose my job? Mm -hmm. Right. There's so many things that are kind of at stake that then you feel like you have to front, you know, certainty and pride, like all these other things come into play. You defend a perspective that, you know, might actually not, you know, it's about as strong as a piece of hay. Right. So (laughs) if I had continued to try and defend, um, this light banter that I, I needed that first thing in the morning, that, that was useless. That was not 
you know, it was not a, a good element in our relationship or the work. And sometimes we get stuck in that out of like pride or, you know, you, you started that direction, you better stick with it. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of those things can get in the way of um, really being with yourself and really being with the other person in the moment of conflict. Yeah. <clears throat> Thank you for sharing that. Um, I, I just, I felt, feel like I need to go journal now. <laughs> that sparked so many things for me. We'll send you a bill. Well, you know, but Heather, I think I was, it's interesting you should say that because I was going to bring this back to something Christine said earlier about doing the work yourself mm-hmm. first. Yeah. And one of the things that I happen to know about Christine is I, I am extremely intimately aware of the work she has done first. Mm. And I think I would say that she knows that about me. And I think that part of what um, our book, maybe the way to flip this is, when we talk about mindfulness, we're talking about work. Yeah. And, 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 you know, really knowing what your story is and owning it and really having a sense of what your, I mean, there's lots of words, right? Triggers are, or, or, you know, hot spots or sore spots. I mean, all of those things are, are, are really critical to being able to enter into something where you, you have to make yourself vulnerable mm-hmm. a certain amount, but you also need to protect yourself. And, and in a relationship where trust has been a little fractured, you know, knowing your emotional footprint and knowing where you're likely to get triggered or where someone's likely to tap into your sense of, you know, um, imposter syndrome or whatever, mm-hmm. right? All of that stuff is part of what you're going to bring into that conversation. Yeah. And that's the preliminary work we think is, it's not, it's not really important. It's essential. I mean, like nothing can happen if you can't do that because otherwise, um, how how are you going to show somebody that you're already feeling vulnerable towards the part of you that you really don't like? Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't want to, um, I didn't want to ask about the specific strategies and, and like the steps you offer because I want people to buy your book to get the rest of the information, but I do want to acknowledge that, you know, you, you talk about this, in the book, you talk about this sort of work and heaviness <laughs> and importance um, that that I've heard you describing. Um, so you that's part of the book, but also you do say, okay, so here are some things um, that give you to get your uh, to, to sort of I can't remember how you phrased it, but to like reclaim your brain state is one of the things that you talk about. And so th- so I want to just put that out there for people who are wondering if this book is, um, is practical as well as, um, uh, you know, all the other amazing things we've been talking about so far. And yeah, it is, you've, you've got some real good, really good, um, practical pieces in there that sort of fit it all, fit it all together. I mean, one of, one of the things that we struggled with was how to incorporate two parts of the presentations and workshops we've done for years into the structure of the book. One of them Mm -hmm. had to do with um, capturing this voice of the two of us being our imperfect selves in dialogue, trusting each other enough to, you know, for Christine to say, let me tell you what was going on. And, And that used to be a very, very intentional conscious part of the workshop because we felt like we needed to perform, we needed to walk the walk. Um, but the other is just recognizing that most people are going to turn to chapter six or whatever, right? <laughs> and look and see what chapter six is. Yeah, or seven, whatever the one is that starts with start with yourself, right? Uh, five, and, starting with yourself. Yeah. Yep. So so and 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 I I kind of wanted to end each of those chapters, five, six, and seven, with okay, after you fuck this up because you didn't read chapters once before, <laughs> go back and read chapters one through four. Because because actually the, the chapters one through four were a deeper, more extended series of reflections about who you are that you bring into the situation. Mm-hmm. And and that one chapter on focus on yourself is kind of an encapsulation of that. But yeah, it is very strategic. I mean, we we actually spend a lot of time saying, here's how you need to listen. Here are the steps. Mm-hmm. And that came out of the workshop work we had done with thousands of people where we would walk around during, we had a little role play activity and we would walk around and you could just hear people incapable of listening to somebody else. <laughs> and it was in a role play. They were like assuming identities and they couldn't do it. So it made us realize, gosh, we really have a field that likes to think that they're really good at interacting mm. with other people. 
but are people actually able to listen actively and acknowledge what somebody else is saying and so on? So we do have a lot of the practical steps in there. There's yeah. a few lists in there too about, mm -hmm. you know, certain attitudes and things like that. But, you know, buyer beware. The reason why we wrote the first four chapters is precisely because they actually are the foundational components to be able to do this stuff in the later chapters. Right, right. It's it's really such a good book. I, um, uh, and, and so I also teach in college and um, it's going to be time to make some textbook recommendations. It's a statewide, you know, network of colleges. And I'm like, hmm, which class could I sneak this one mm -hmm. into? <laughs> Probably all of them. Yeah. Um, yes. But which will be the most convincing to the committee. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I was just going to add that it really goes back to what you say about doing the work that if people are looking for like the practical strategies, every chapter begs you to do something. And it's um, I hope people feel inspired when they read it, but it's not an inspirational read. It's a mm -hmm. do the work read. Yeah. Right. Our our words are not the magic. The magic is in the work that people do when they go through the things that we ask them to consider and think about and write down and try out in their relationships. And um, I've facilitated um, this book, either as a book study or small group discussions, work groups um, with uh, two organizations. And it takes us a good six to 12 months to work through the content, really? right? It's not a tremendously thick heavy, dense book, but the work is. Mm -hmm. And so I think when people are, are looking for something concrete, it's all, it's all concrete, but yeah. be ready to do the work. It's not, you're not going to read it in a weekend and get out of it what you need to. It, it really has to be tackled, you know, one chapter, one task, one, try it out at a time. And I do also want to mention there is a free um, PLC guide with activities that's available on the Free Spirit uh, website. Mm -hmm. And that's a good way for people to work through it in a group or with partners um, to facilitate some of that reflection and practice. Yeah. yeah. And, and Christine, you referenced something that um, Heather also um, referenced, which is there's a there's a mindfulness teacher that says, um, uh, you can't do it alone, but nobody can do it for you. And I think that that's a good attitude to have mm -hmm. around this stuff. You need it like a gym buddy for the conflict <laughs> stuff. And, and in, in part, because it's really useful for somebody to say, oh, wow, me too. Mm -hmm. When you're, you know, going warts and all about some crazy thing that you think, or some experience that really hurt you that you can't believe it hurt you or what have you. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that was so, um, powerful about uh, doing workshops, especially with large groups with, you know, when we were doing zero to three with hundreds of people, we would do some of those um, Instapol things. Mm -hmm. And people, you, the experience of people seeing almost everyone choosing the same answer wow. was really powerful. And of course, by that point, Christine and I had gotten used to noticing it, it you know, we're, we're humans big shock, right? <laughs> I mean, and so all this research on neurology and emotions and social emotional development and interpersonal stuff, I mean, it points in the same direction, but that doesn't mean I don't feel like I'm still a circus freak, crazy person mm. when I have those exact feelings. But right. if I'm in a room filled with other people, or I have a buddy who's saying, I, I get it, that makes sense to me. Um, and again, that was a dynamic that Christine and I very actively tried to incorporate into the book is that it, it's us too, right? We're not, we're not on a pillar telling you how we figured it all out, right? We're down in the mud with you. Yeah. Yeah. And I, so I think a lot of people listen to this show uh, while they're driving. So I'm imagining those kinds of connections being made, but like, as people are driving and listening to you and thinking, oh, that's me <laughs> or, oh, that fits, that fits what I've been experiencing. Yeah. So I think that's great. I, I could keep going, but we just hit about an hour. So we probably need to wrap this up. Thank well, can, you both can I say, a lot. Can I say one quick thing about, sure. about drivers? If you are driving, I want you to look in the passenger seat and notice who you brought home from work with you. Oh, that little invisible person or that big adult person who actually isn't physically in the car, but is in the car and you're having dialogues or you're regretting what yes. you did or you're beating yourself up or whatever. One of the things that we say in our book and, and do in our workshops and, and talk about a lot, Christine and I talk with each other a lot about this. That person can tell us 
an awful lot about ourselves. They, mm-hmm. they can spin an autobiographical tale because what's going on with that person is what taps into the things that in different situations evoke big feelings because they're connected to our identity. And that sense of turning toward that difficult person I'm taking home, we don't want you to take that person home. We want you to leave that person at work. And that's one of the things that the book really encourages is that we think that looking at that person can help you leave them at school or at work or at higher ed. Yeah. In the, in the department meeting. Although sometimes that person I'm taking home in the car is, is me. Yes. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a great point. Right, exactly. Pointing it's out all true. the things I did that were embarrassing and silly. Um, I'll go sit on the couch after every podcast recording yes. and do the same thing. <laughs> okay. Thank you both. This was really fun and also really valuable. Um, and when we, uh, when we publish the podcast, we'll also share ways for them to find the book. Um, do you want, have anything social media where people can find you if they want to? Sure. So, uh, we have a finding your way through conflict, uh, Facebook page and, uh, Chris and I both have Twitter accounts. I think mine is C Snyder nine, two, six. Uh, good question, okay. Heather. Yeah, okay. certainly we're around. Okay. Yeah, and, and Free Spirit has a bunch of social media presence that, as you know, from your work with all those folks and, and yeah. Lydia and everybody, there's there's all sorts of great um, content there and you can connect to us through them. They're, okay. they're really great about that. Great. And we really do. I mean, we we really are eager and happy to talk more about this with folks. You probably are picking up the vibe here, Heather, that this is what we mean by we like it, is yeah. that we love talking about it and we find it kind of uh, a great opportunity for learning, even if it involves a little bit of self-effacement mm-hmm. um, at times. So mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Thank you so, so much for having us. This yeah, has been, this has a, been a wonderful great. and enjoyable conversation. Yeah. So My thank pleasure. you, Heather. My pleasure. And Chris. I think, <laughs> yeah, thanks, I think uh, yeah, I think folks are going to like it. So thank you for being here. Thanks to everybody who's listening. Come back again next week for another episode. We'll see you then. And that's the show. Now go get your nerd on. This has been an Explorations Early Learning Upstairs Studio production. Oh.